and welcome to the most excellent 80s movies podcast. It's the podcast where a filmmaker, a comedian, and their fabulous guests revisit the 80s movies we think we love or might have missed uh, with our modern eyes to see how they hold up, discuss what they're all about. Uh, And today is going to be a real doozy we are watching uh risky business a movie selection from 1983 so your folks are going out of town just use your best judgment you know we trust you you got the place all to yourself A good time, Joe. In the privacy of your own home. Just take those old records off the shelf. That's her. She's fantastic. Yeah. I listen to them by myself. Did you have a good time last night? <laughs> I had a great time. Today's music ain't got the same song. You ever get high, Joe? Don't let me do anything stupid. Don't worry. the U-boat commander. I don't remember giving permission for a party, Joe. A party? I've got a trig midterm tomorrow and I'm being chased by Guido, the killer pimp. Doesn't anyone want to accomplish anything or do we just want to make money? Make money. Make a lot of money. There's a time for playing it safe. And a time for risky business. I think that's another example of a kind of a weird trailer where they're they're really not capturing what the movie is, which admittedly with this movie would be a struggle. <laughs> So they're kind of like choosing moments that make it seem like it's going to be a, you know, an 80s sex comedy, which Mm -hmm. it it definitely isn't. Yeah, it's much more. uh, This isn't the movie. um, I mean, this is this is during the age of like crazy sex comedies of guys just trying to get some, Mm -hmm. you know, and and he he quote gets some really early on. And it's really more about. It's really a story told by, rather than a horny teenager, it's a story told by an adult. And it almost feels like someone looking back on their life, mm-hmm. you know? It almost feels like an adaptation of, like, a novel, you know, of someone, of a, that adult character looking back 20 years on the a, a time in his life, you know? Because it's really more of a a... A, you know, I, I, to reuse it, uh, an adult story mm-hmm. uh, of of a character who is just twisting himself in and out with guilt and doubt and fear um, and kind of putting on these sunglasses and creating an alter ego. Yeah. Um, well, that voice is filmmaker Nathan Blackwell, who is, uh, you know, with us as always here on uh, the most excellent 80s movies podcast. Good um, to be and- here. <laughs> and we have a very exciting uh, special guest 
today, uh, podcaster extraordinaire, host of the Superhero Ethics podcast, uh, where Nathan and I recently guested, and the host of the Star Wars Universe podcast. Uh, hello, Matthew. Hello. I'm uh, really glad to be here with y'all. Uh, and I as well. I probably would never have chosen this movie if not for your unique take <laughs> on exploring um, ethics in uh, in these in, in you know in superhero movies. There's probably a bit more fun to it than than in movies about teen um, prostitution, uh, <laughs> which also isn't necessarily what this movie is about. Um, but just really quickly before we get all the way in it, I wanted to ask you, Nathan, what is going on with your current production, the la the last movie ever made? Right. Um, uh, so right, we're we're we finished half of the production. I think I, I mentioned this on Back to the Future, mm -hmm. um, and we were going to shoot the other half, but we had to stop because of Omicron. Um, Omicron. We, it's like an angry, you. Damn uh, you on a, an angry transformer destroying that's our exactly worlds. It. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, we we wanted to we we uh, we uh, do our due diligence and we want to make sure everyone's safe. We uh, tested we test everyone before we start shooting, um, and we had we had some positives, and so we had to uh, put a pause and everyone in their and their neighbor was uh, being affected by Omicron. And so mm -hmm. we just, we've had to reschedule, um, but we're going to be shooting again at the, uh, the end of February. Awesome. You know, I mean, a lot can happen in a production and certainly when there's a highly contagious <laughs> um, sickness going around, um, it's something to, to take into consideration so yeah yeah you can't i mean you it, it was like one of those situations you can't even be upset because the 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 people who did get um omicron um uh luckily it was not bad they were vaccinated um and they were super careful you know and it was mm -hmm. it was like it, it was one of those things that either they you know, they they got it while they were masked or something happened at the grocery store. Who knows? But um, they were being super careful about it and they still got it. Luckily, they're doing just fine. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's like one of it's literally like one of those act of God things that you can't yeah. you can't. It's like you can't you can be upset that someone rear ended your car, but it's one of those things you can't control. So you can only get so you know, worked up about it. It's just literally sure. the fact of, of trying to do anything in the state that the world is right now. You know, I, I'm just coming off my own bout with Omicron. So I'll apologize in advance mm. to you all that you may have to edit out some coughing or a, a raspy voiceness, but yeah, it's just, you know, it's, we did all we could to be as careful as possible, but these things still happen. Yeah, absolutely. But you know what it is, it is really, um, difficult and challenging to be trying to make something in um the the world as it is today and with the challenges we're facing today and so you know i salute you nathan for for still being willing to try and and getting out there and making something new and and all the people who are helping your production so it's going to be amazing when it does get made and i i know everybody's gonna love it um so i'm excited and hopeful for when it gets to be shot again 
Yeah. Uh, I can't wait. That'd be nice. It's, it's, It's one of those weird things to where I was incredibly disappointed when we had to postpone it, but I was also like enormously relieved that I got to sleep in and just play video games the next day. Right. You know, it's like that weird thing. I was just like, yeah, I don't have to do anything. I can just curl up and hide. Hooray. Right. I don't have to go do that thing that is my lifelong dream. Yeah, I feel you exactly. on that, Nathan. It's but- a hard time to be an improv comedy theater owner. So mm-hmm. I feel you. I feel you. That's the thing um, is that, you know, it's like lifelong dreams. Like you use that phrase and it's like, you know, you it sounds like, oh, fantastic. You're just running through an orchard and picking up the best fruit. Instead, it's like it's the hardest thing and everything ab- about it. You want to just scream and escape from because it, it deals with so many like so much fear. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, Okay, risky business. I have never seen this movie. I watched (laughs) it for the first time uh, for this podcast today um, because I knew the plot of it and I knew the cliches of it. And so I thought I knew what this movie was and I just assumed that it would not be for me. Um, But this movie is not at all what I thought it was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's um yeah, it, it it's it turns out to be much more mature and interesting than I think um its reputation is, or at least our you know, our not maybe not reputation, but our assumption. Yeah, I, yeah well, I, I have to admit I went through kind of a journey with this movie. Um and you all were talking earlier about like is it a sex comedy, is it something much more serious? I saw this movie for the first time when I was maybe like 11 or 12 and so i saw it as just like wow that's the teenage life that i want to have um that seems like the dream um and and for context one thing that's important to know is i went to like one of the things i think is so fascinating about this movie is that they live in a world where you know if you don't go to the ivy league if you go to just you know the university of illinois which by the way is a very good school your life is ruined Mm mm-hmm I went to I, – I lived in New York City. I got scholarships to private schools. So I lived in a world that was very similar to that. So like growing up, I was just like, yeah, this this makes total sense. I get it. I'm 12. Look at all the pretty girls. I love this. Mm-hmm. I probably watched yeah. it one, one more time when I was a teenager. And then, and then over, as the years passed, I started to think a lot more negatively about it and think, God, what a ridiculous movie. Like it's all such a, you know – Reaganite upper middle class dream that has no understanding of like the real world. And when I suggested it to you all, I figured we're going to have a great time ripping it apart for being Mm -hmm. horribly sexist and horribly classist and, and and like, you know, to all white kids and, and just all of these things about how this idea that this, this should be the aspirational life. And so when I watched it again and realized, wait a minute, the writers know all the things that I think are problematic about this movie, and that's the point. It's satire. It's mm-hmm. pointing out all the ridiculousness of teenagers growing up this way and the cultures involved. I, I, I realized we were going to have a very different discussion than what I thought we were going to have, and I was really excited <laughs> about that. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly what you said it much better than than I did, Matthew. Um, even the even the taglines and the like short summaries are like Joel's parents are out of town and he's gonna have make some money with prostitutes. Like that's what you <laughs> think the movie is, and I I guess it is, but um, yeah, it's it's way more about um what it what does it mean to make money? Is that the only goal of your life? Like. And this movie is way more sex positive than even like an, another ethically um, murky movie that we have done recently, 16 Candles. Um, mm. So there is a lot to unpack. Um, did you see this movie as a kid, Nathan? No, um, I probably caught this somewhere in my 20s. Um mm. For I, I don't know I I don't even remember the exactly when and where but I know I've seen it before uh, and I saw it past my my teenage years mm-hmm. um, but uh, no this yeah this isn't one that I that necessarily I grew up on it's like the they the the kind of like uh, you know sex comedies were more the kind of stuff that we right we we, we uh, think of we associate with is you know like you know um like the meatballs esque kind of stuff where it's mm-hmm. like you know like you know like the 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 sea level um movies with michael j fox and and you know and things like that you know just like you know uh, i've got to have it kind of stuff you know like mm-hmm. weird science and things like that yeah and it's interesting because i, I think of now now that i've a better understanding of it I think of this movie very similar to another great 80s movie that I wonder if you all have covered, uh, Fast Times at Richmond High, which mm. is the same thing. Like, I saw it when I was a teenager. I didn't really get much out of it, except Phoebe K- Katz looks really good in a bikini. Um, <laughs> and then went back and watched later and was like, oh, no, this isn't one of those sex comedies. This is very much uh, a critique of that. And, and a you know, a I mean, Fast Times, I think, is less a satire and more just a, like, here's how all this is broken and wrong. Mm-hmm. But I know that came out a year before this, and so I, I have to imagine this was inspired by that in some ways because it's. I think it's. I don't think the marketing is is intent is uh, uh, um, accidental. Like I, I, I'm I'm totally projecting here, but I imagine they wanted people to think it was a sex comedy and then have to have like a, like it does work on the level of a sex comedy if you're just watching it on that level. But if you actually think about it, it it's kind of just a critique of the whole sex comedy idea, and I mm-hmm. I just love that. Yeah, plus they had to get people out of their houses and and to come see it. So that was probably an easier sell. Oh, for sure. But even the moments of comedy are not like this movie has jokes, Mm -hmm. but they, they it has very funny moments, which in different hands would be a a very funny you know like i was thinking like oh this could be a better off dead type sat you know jokey movie if it wanted to be because some of the jokes are really um could be in a different director a different actor's hands just just like wah wah slapstick you know when he's like his friends come over while he's doing homework and they're like we heard your parents are out of town and, and we would like to uh uh, use this time to uh, take the bullet ta- train to Pound Town if you don't mind. And he's like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And then he's like, Ugh, I can't concentrate. I'm going to leave. Grunt twice if you will lock the door on your way out. You know, <laughs> and 
then there's like t- t- ridiculous sex noise, but it's like, huh, huh. <laughs> okay, I guess they'll <laughs> lock the door. Um, you know, there's really funny, like the moment where he's riding the Porsche as it is about to crash into Lake Michigan. Like it, it, it's there for laughs and it is funny and it's a joke and it's a bit. And if you just read the script, you would be literally picturing the height of silliness and like winking at Mm -hmm. the audience. They're not winking at all. And they're, you know, this movie made me think of just maybe like the tone or the feel or whatever, almost of the graduate of like a person who's like, I don't know what to do with myself. And I feel like I'm supposed to want, these things mm-hmm. and he and he like he feel he feels lost so like i think tom cruise's acting is really great in this movie and of course rebecca de mornay is uh incredible and the directing is really like there he's making moves here the director yeah. of this movie mm-hmm. and i think it's awesome that you bring up better off dead because i think better off dead you're right is very much in that kind of like romantic comedy will the loser teen guy get the girl but i think it's probably the absolute best example of that of that genre mm-hmm. but it but in that movie uh the actor um uh curtis armstrong plays you know our john cusack's best friend and is just this ridiculous character who's constantly who, who's sort of giving the hero advice but always saying ridiculous things and is never treated as a real person he's just like this kind of plot and joke machine Mm-hmm. The same actor plays the very good friend of Tom Cruise's character in this. And again, is like he's the instigator. He's the one who calls the sex worker for the first time to get them over. He's the one who pushes Joel, you know, to, to move forward with him constantly being the one to say, sometimes you just got to say, what the F? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's a scene where they get into trouble with the pimp of, of Rebecca de Mornay. And, and that character uh, is along for the ride. And you see him be scared. And you see him realize that all this nonsense advice he's been giving doesn't work. And I was like, oh, that's that that's the level that the better off deads never go to, you know? And Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, that's what I think it was so fascinating. That's the same actor because it's he's playing a very similar role. But then you get to go see like what are the consequences of this in a way a better off dead would never show you. Yeah, it suddenly becomes human. Yeah. Such a great call. I didn't even realize when I was making that own comparison to myself that, of course, Booger from the Nerds is in both movies. Of course yep. he is. Um, and having a very different experience in each one, I'm sure. Uh, so this is the it is the story that they tell you. It is the story of a, a young man who is a, a he's he's Tom Cruise, who is not yet anything special he's been in the outsiders and taps and you know um oh a couple maybe a couple other things but he is he is certainly not anybody at all yet um and the director didn't even want him for this movie uh he sort of had to convince the um director that that he could play this role um and i think he does play it amazingly you can see like the tom cruisiness that's there like the raw tom cruisiness that's there but like i i read that he lost a bunch of weight and then gained a bunch of weight so that he would have that sort of soft pampered baby fat Mm. look that he has um in this movie uh and he does a perfect job of not being he's not the kid's 
from Pretty in Pink. He's not the kids from Sixteen Candles. He's not an entitled, and I'm, I'm not saying he isn't entitled, but he's not the, you know, you think of James Spader's character from Sixteen Candles, who's just mm-hmm. like a complete slime ball. That's not him. <laughs> he wants to do his homework while his friends are banging upstairs. Right. And he keeps doing his homework. Like, he's still trying to get his homework done while Rebecca Mor- DeMornay is like walking around his house with barely mm-hmm. any clothes on. He's like, look, I just got to get this homework done mm-hmm. um he's very he's not overconfident monster he is shy he is i don't know he's he's unsure of himself yeah well i think the one of the things that i get most from his character is the fear you know mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I, to me I, and granted in part because i come from the kind of a world that joel is existing in maybe i have more sympathy for that but i i think the movie is meaning i don't think the movie is meaning to make us just be sympathetic to joel but also kind of realize joel is in this ridiculously privileged entitled position where he has these horrible blinders on mm-hmm. because it's his constant fear throughout the movie mm-hmm. is your life will be ruined you know and yeah. it's this mm-hmm. part of that is because And I think the movie does a great job of kind of like letting you see this without hitting you over the head with it. He lives in a world where everything has been scripted for him. You know, he's supposed to do all these classes, do all these things, take the SATs so that he can go to an Ivy League school, major in business, and then go on to have, you know, the great career. Um, and, And so much of this is about is that that, that that feeling that he has where if he deviates from that in the slightest, his life is ruined. You know, mm-hmm. if he has sex with a teenage girl and gets caught, his, his life is going to be ruined. The police are going to come. The father is going to come. If he if he doesn't get into Princeton, you know, one of the most exclusive colleges in the world, <laughs> and he only goes to the University of Illinois, his life is ruined. Like and I, I remember watching that that moment i I keep focusing on because that really hit me so hard of just thinking like how many people would watch this movie and go what what are you talking about Mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with going to your state college that's a great thing to do even going to college especially in the 80s was something that by no means everyone was doing yeah and i think to me that's kind of one of i think you're right he's shy he's not the horn dog although he's definitely able to be led around by that but once he gets you know sexually initiated but, but more than anything, he's just so afraid. He's so terrified that if he doesn't do everything he's been told, his life won't turn out exactly like it's been planned, which means his life is ruined. Yeah. 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 I feel like the, the scene that represents that, you know, his like um, emotional being is the scene where the car, like it, it, it normally, like where the car, the Porsche, his dad's Porsche, is slowly rolling down the hill and then rolls onto the dock. And it's not like a quick moment. It is a moment to where he has so much time to push against it and to freak out, but he is unable to stop it. He is mm-hmm. unable to stop it. He keeps going. He's yelling for help. He's pushing. He, there's nothing he could do. The, the keys are locked inside. And he, he is just watching the whole thing more or less in his mind in slow motion. And mm-hmm. it's just all the panic and knowing that his life is going to end if anything happens to this car and he cannot stop it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you don't get that. He, but, you, you know, it, here are two films about somebody who 
damages their parents' car that they love more than the child, perhaps, you know, but we don't get that Ferris Bueller feeling, um, you know, that we get from this. Like, he's not a Ferris Bueller who's like, ah, what's the worst? You know, what's the worst? He's like, oh, my God, what's the worst? You know, right. and here he is at home alone and his friends are like, get a hooker, have a party, drive the car. And he's like, no, I'm going to continue raking these leaves. Thank you very much. <laughs> Um, yeah, th and this is a movie about Cameron instead of being the movie about Ferris. Yes, exactly <laughs> that. And I did read in the like trivia that the layout of the city is that Cameron's house would be around the corner from Joel's house. Mm, so they're yeah. they're the two kids who got all the anxiety that this '80s money centric lifestyle um, puts out, and and not the 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 other things uh, that we see. So. Booger from the nerds, of course, does call a hooker, or, you know, a sex worker from the back pages of the newspaper and has uh, has them sent over to Joel's. And, you know, of course, he's just like he's at home eating TV dinners and doing his homework and doing his chores like a good boy when this uh, sex worker shows up. And even this moment, I was so surprised was not played for a joke because the sex worker that shows up is a trans woman. Right. And yeah. they it's not they don't point and laugh at it as much as I feel like they would have in another movie. Yeah, I think that's very true yeah. cuz I, I remember that scene with some like kind of fear you know as i got close to it i was like I, I i was wondering would this be the super awkward you know making fun of a trans person make uh, the fact that, that also uh, uh uh she's black you know so like you know the black transgender uh sexual woman is often like sort of the height of the kind of like gay panic fear you know mm -hmm. not that, that gayness mm -hmm. and transgender are connected but just that the homophobic transphobic kind of the way they tie in together that's very often the laugh line of the like how do you get the bully you know you get the bully by you know getting him drunk enough that he wants to hit on this you know black trans woman and then you can embarrass him about it like I, i'm sure that's I don't remember exactly which ones, but I, I know that that's a plot line I've seen in a number of these 80s movies. And it's it happens in Crocodile Dundee, uh, mm, where he meets a, a, a woman in a bar and thinks that he's having a good time. And his friend, the cab driver, is like, well, just so you know, that yeah. is a trans person. And, and uh, then it's played for a huge joke. Um, and it's a real bummer. Yeah. That, thank you. That's definitely one of them. And, I, yep. and what I like here is that to some extent it is played as a joke, but the joke is at Joel's expense, not hers. Cause the point right. is more that he is terrified of her. And, and, but in part, he's also terrified of, I think a big part of what he's terrified about is being rude to her. Like he wants to be super polite. Mm -hmm. He wants to be nice to this person who, you know, just got called out for, you know, cause of this idiot friend of his. Yeah. He's, he's just fallen into the world of adults, uh, you know, and sex, Mm -hmm. You know, and, and and he is terrified. It's like at the beginning of the movie where all his friends are playing like poker and they're chomping on cigars, you know, and trying to act like adult men. Mm -hmm. And oh, my God, they are like, ch like literally destroying those cigars in their mouths. It's oh, so, so disgusting. Ew, it's so it's, gross. As a 
as a as a as a smoker of cigars, like they're just they they are treating those things like children. <laughs> I appreciate that you noticed that because I smoke a cigar once a year. I don't know much about them, but I've played poker for all of my life, and what mm. I noticed is that the poker is so bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. But that's that. probably what their daddies do, and so that's yeah. what they are grooming themselves to be. Um, but the the Jackie, the sex worker in question, is very calm. Like she's calm. She's clearly the one who's in control of this situation, and she says to Joel through the door, "Be a courageous person and open this door so that I can call a cab." Right. And he's just like, "You're right. I can't uh, leave you outside." Like. And then they, he, you know, she's like, I get it. You're just a white boy off the lake, uh, but you need to pay me for my time and the ride I took to get out here. And, uh, you know, he ends up paying her $75 to not bang. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's that night where he is, you know, alone in his room that uh, has in it. It has this red light in it that's a flashing checks cashed sign that I was really curious about because I was like, is, does he have that ironically, you know, a check cashing blinking light place is something that you, you know, associate with very low rent um, right. parts of the. So why does he have it? And, you know, does he think it's funny? But anyway, it's there and it's flashing. And that's when he's like, he's so scared and afraid and sex shamed that he can't even masturbate without thinking about his parents her parents <laughs> the police and the national guard showing up to be like you you put your pants back on and come out here and it's like <laughs> oh my god um that's the moment where it was really a better off dead thing where it's like he has this um sort of almost a dream sequence mm-hmm uh, but then he does call Lana, uh, which he got the number from Jackie. Is like, this is what you want. This is what all white boys on the lake yep. want. Call Lana. He does Lana. put on the hockey mask first. He to does protect to protect himself. himself. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great mm-hmm. moment. Um, and in that moment, you really feel like, oh, he's just a baby. Like he's just yeah. a, a little boy in this terrible '80s world. Um, and then so Rebecca de Mornay does show up and God, she's incredible, right? Yeah. That moment mm-hmm. where she's mm-hmm. in the purple de- dress and the door blows open. It's like, yeah, this is not a sex comedy where the boobs are presented to you like boobs. It's like <laughs> <laughs> it's like really sort of sexy and and yeah. really way more intimate than you'd see in a a movie that's more similar to a Porky's. I, I think that's really true. And it's, I mean, as I said, 12-year-old me just loved that scene. I didn't have mm-hmm. any understanding about what was happening. Boobs and butts, yeah. <laughs> but going back and watching it, yeah, it, you know, so much of those movies, it's very objective. It's very about, about objectification. It's about, you know, ha, 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 we get to like, I think it's Porky is where our heroes are all, or no, it's Revenge of the Nerds. I think where we're like our heroes are like drilling a hole through the wall so they can watch cheerleaders shower, and it's like mm-hmm. horribly offensive thing. This feels like yes, Rebecca Bourne uh, is naked in parts of the movie and looks very, very good, but it feels so much more respectful. You know, it feels like it is all about the connection they have and how she has all the power in the situation, and she is, uh, you know, this fantasy come to life for him. And mm-hmm. 
you know, I think even being saying that, like, I think I would want to be like, I, I think if you made this movie today, there probably still would be some some differences in how that shot and and for good reasons. But yeah, I think it is so it's it's there's an eroticism. There's a sensuality to it that is just not found in your average 80s teen, teen sex movie by any means. Mm-hmm. And even like they show them they show them uh, uh, on the stairs and I'm like, why would that be your choice? You're in this gigantic house. You're going to choose the stairs. Bad choice. Rookie move. Uh, and then they're in a chair um, in like the the what I assume to be the media room of the house. Uh, and I, I was like, OK, so a comedy would have then continued to heighten that moment and show us them uh, banging mm-hmm. it out, you know, in the Porsche, on the Porsche, in the pile of leaves he raked, you know, and all the, you know, all around and everywhere. Uh, but this one's just like, no, that's not what it is. They're just like, you know, and then they're having like coffee in the morning and reading the paper and chatting about real estate. Uh, and, you know, he's like, this is my parents' house. I don't own mm-hmm. it. Um, I have to go to school now. And she's like, cool, cool. Uh, you owe me $300. He definitely should have checked in to find out <laughs> what the what the bottom line was going to be. Um, and then he's like, well, I can go cash in a bond. And like just that piece of the puzzle was like, and then and later in the movie when they do like decide to have a, a um, brothel at the house, through circumstances you see all these boys cashing in their bonds and it's like oh my god like yeah that is the peak at privilege which is like they all have hundreds of dollars in bonds given to them by their grandparents because Mm -hmm. that is who they are yeah like i said i being the scholarship kid in a world like that was so like just so mind warping to me because like yeah, that was what, what all the people I go to high school were able to do, you know, had that kind of disposable income. And I, I think the thing I like most about Rebecca DeMornay's character, Lana, is that she is the one who holds up a mirror to Joel to show mm-hmm. him how privileged he is, to show mm-hmm. him how, like, you know, there's so many great, I think it's, it's it'd be so easy to make her character one of two cliches, either the completely um, irredeemable, scheming backstabbing she's a sex worker so she has no morals whatsoever she's just out to betray him and steal from him or the hooker with a heart of gold kind of cliche where she doesn't want to do this she got forced into it for the wrong reasons and now joel can come in and rescue her from this terrible life she's in mm-hmm. she's, and neither she's neither of those, of those things yeah, yeah which i was like really took me by surprise and i love that piece of the puzzle like there are moments there are moments where you're like, oh, no, she's here comes the story. Oh, no, here mm-hmm. comes Joel to save her. And right. she is going to stay with him and they'll ride away on the lawnmower. All can't buy me love. <laughs> um, and that doesn't happen. And she's mm-hmm. not only is she like, uh, look, I don't need you to save me. I don't need you to judge me. And like she's unafraid. She's laughing as they're driving away from guido and she's like yelling out the window at him when they're in joel's house we work for joel now she's just like doing her own thing and when they show us the inside of her apartment finally it it, that's what makes it even more clear that she's neither of those two things that you so accurately described matthew she's not a villain she's not um you know just waiting for richard gear to save her from this life like she she's like 
living her life and like i'm Mm -hmm. sure she has wants and goals and desires but like she's not trapped in the life in the way that i assumed she would have been yeah Mm -hmm. i think it's a very good way to put it and i think like because on the surface you could think that joel rescues her because she does go to joel for protection from from guido which Mm -hmm. by the way fantastic you know like such a ridiculous character Mm -hmm. um uh, old Joey Pants. Yeah, Joey he then be- Pants. He then Joe betrays- <laughs> He then betrays all of our heroes in Matrix. Um, and he just looks so different, though. He but- really does. Right? Like so, I had to look it so up. Much I was younger, like, so much thinner. I think that's Joe Pantoliano, but I, you know, I mean, he's completely not the man we see in Goonies. So, yeah. um, what I what I love though about with Lana with Joel in that is that, like, she jumps from. Uh, Guido to Joel as a way to get away from Guido because obviously he's he's not good for her but it's 100% her using Joel it's not mm-hmm. Joel rescuing her it's her seeing a better opportunity and leaping to that and and again here she doesn't become villainous but she's absolutely taking advantage of Joel's innocence and naivete and mm-hmm. I, I love that because it's like yeah you do have all these resources this is a person who needs your help um, but 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 he, she's not begging. She's never in a position where he has power over her. She has all the power, and she just gets what she needs. Yeah, and and there's a scene where they, after she comes to, they run away from Guido. Uh, he's trying to get the egg back, so she has stolen rather than wait for him to come back with his, you know, war bonds or whatever it was that he's cashing. Uh, she has stolen a football-sized crystal. St- Dubin egg that is like the mantle piece. Right. The representation of everything that he is wound up about that yeah. his parents represent, you know? Like, just like, it, 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 yeah, just like this glass egg that has an, you know, at the end has an imperceptible crack in it that is mm-hmm. now ruined. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, like, I, you said it. Nathan and I didn't think about it like it's this clear glass egg it's something that has no value except for the value that's placed upon it by its status and that is the life he's aiming for right is it like he says to his friends do we want to make money or do we want to achieve something and they're like no we just want money we want the crystal egg to put on the mantle this meaningless piece of glass as a display of uh, our conquering or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, you took too long. I stole your egg. <laughs> you know, kind of referencing another favorite 80s movies of mine, completely different genre, uh, the movie Wall Street with Charlie Sheen and, and Michael Douglas. You know, a lot of that movie is about these young people fresh out of business school who want to be huge economic successes. They want to play with the big dogs like Gordon Gecko, the, the Michael Douglas character. And and watching this, especially that scene where all the kids are just like, yeah, we just we just want to make money. I, I was like, oh, these are the kids who go to business school and become the Charlie Sheen characters, you know. Um, and it was just like, here, this is obviously much more satirical, but that's who this is yeah. about. And it's it, there's so much it's satirizing, it, but but it's also just the whole like when you think of the Reagan era and this idea of like just make money and who cares about whatever anything else is and all the stock market shenanigans of the time, you know that. That, that's exactly what this movie is about, even though it's in a much more satirical way than like Wall Street, which is much more serious. Yeah. And it's interesting because Wall Street is obviously a negative view of those people 
Right. But people, but those same people, like the 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 whole, you know, like speech, greed is good, is supposed to highlight what we don't like about that. But then the people who represent that use that actually as they see it as a positive, you right. know, Which as, as kind of like Fight Club, right? Where it's like, no, 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 you're supposed to hate this and see how uh-huh. gross it is, and they're like, no, we love it, yeah. Yeah, and, and and it's an interesting needle that this movie has to thread as well, you know. Like, you know, for the most part, we're seeing the movie through Tom Cruise's experience, right? But it, it's a tough, it's a tough act to to balance of showing this thing realistically and you making your own judgments on it, and yet showing it as a positive, life changing experience. You know, I think ultimately running a, <laughs> a brothel out of your um, out of your parents' house is a little harder to replicate than than being on Wall Street. Well, but even the guy who runs Princeton, who's there to evaluate Joel, coincidentally on the night when he is uh, running a a brothel from his home, <laughs> is only convinced that Joel is Princeton material, not based on his achievements, not based on his grades or his scores, but the fact that. He's like, oh, well, clearly this kid gets it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even know about the Porsche or the circumstances. All he knows is that this kid is running a whorehouse while his parents are out of town. He's like, yep, that's what makes you Princeton material, friend. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and that, that to me especially was just such a great skewering. Of, like, as someone who – I think from my high school, um, 60, I, I went to a very good school that was an Ivy League and it wasn't until 25, I was 25 or so that I got enough reality kicks in the head to realize I wasn't a failure because I didn't go to the Ivy League, you know, and mm-hmm. and, and the skewering of the whole Ivy League culture of like, yeah, that that's what would make you Princeton material is just so brilliant. And mm-hmm. I do want to talk about the, um, the, the whole like brothel scene, because I think that here's where the movie, like, I think the movie is for the most part, very respectful of both destiny, uh, Jackie and Lana and sex workers in general. But the, the, I mean, there's also like, you know, if I put on too critical a lens, I do have to look at this as what this is about is about like, like on the one hand, there's this kind of wonderful aspect of like, I mean, I have a number of friends who are sex workers and like, yeah, if you have, you have a fantasy, like instead of trying to find someone who can you like seduce it, like just paying a sex worker or a professional to help you live that out. Nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. Go for it. I I think that it may, that scene especially is where I think it may cross into romanticizing the sex work kind of dynamics a little bit too much, just in terms of, um, I think I best explain this, like that many young men with that much money where like mm-hmm. it's presented as the women have all of the power. I feel like in the reality that would go very badly with some of the men, mm-hmm. like absolutely not treating the sex workers with the respect they deserve because of the money relationship. Like, I feel like there's a lot more complexity that would happen. And that's the kind of most like, okay, in this fantasy world, that's how it's all going to play out. Uh, there's some economic dynamics around sexuality here that we're ignoring, but for the purpose of what we're saying in this movie, that's totally fine because we're making all these other awesome like sex positive sex worker positive points. Yeah. So what I would was would compare it to also is that like in the movie 16 candles, uh, both the James Spader character and um, 
I'm, I'm mixing up Pretty in Pink and Sixteen Candles. I, I mean, uh, John Hughes Brat Pack. Yeah, that's gonna happen. <laughs> they're all mooshing, uh, uh, but the the boys, the you know, high school senior boys in that story uh, do feel entitled to sex with the women in their lives. Yeah. You know, like she she's passed out upstairs, and he's like, I could violate her as much as I wanted to, but instead I'll just give her to you. And like, there's no explicit money transaction. And in that movie, you know, you've got the Anthony Michael Hall character whose entire life is based on losing his virginity. And it's like, this movie sort of solves that problem. Of like, well, yeah, just go cash in your bond and we'll take that whole race to lose your virginity out of the equation for you. Mm -hmm. And like when he's pitching it to his friends, he's like, look, you're going to go to college. Like these women will teach you how to do sex good and they're like yeah all right that sounds nice so it is presented in that way of like look i'm taking the guesswork out of this for you um and maybe that does give them a little bit of a different relationship to it than the 16 candles of it all where it's like well you i've been dating you you owe me sex yeah in fact they have a conversation at a diner where he's like evaluating all the money that the kid put into taking a girl out for dates and not getting laid mm -hmm. um and he's like well you could just spend that same money and not have to spend time with a human woman and then get laid <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. and i think that's one of the most positive arguments in favor of sex work because the idea of like mm -hmm. getting out of this ridiculous idea of like the money you spend in dating should be a coercive part of convincing someone to have sex just being like if you want to spend money to have sex do it in a way where it, it's completely negotiated and assuming it's a safe power dynamic it's it's fully consensual on both sides in a way that mm -hmm. is very much not in in the 16 candles kind of world like i i remember yeah. I, i'm the perfect age for those so i grew up watching those as a kid and a young teenager and i was heartbroken in pretty and pink that ducky didn't get the girl because mm -hmm. he's the nice guy <laughs> he's so good to her he's pint doesn't he deserve molly ringwald and again, it was later that I was able to look back and go, no, that movie was brilliant. That movie was recognizing that the whole nice guy gets the girl because he deserves her by just having a basic level of human respect. Like, that's nonsense. That's sexist bullshit. But forgive my language. I can edit that out if you need. No, no. We, no. we, we say bad words around here. Okay. <laughs> um, and also, speaking of sexuality, there is something that I noticed, um, which I thought was interesting. So the the... Uh, character his friend I can't remember his friends are all named like Miles and Barry and Glenn so who knows which one's Balky and which one's Booger from the Nerds um, but the is it Miles who is Booger from the Nerds? Yeah I think Miles is um, I found that actor's and name just a minute ago. Um, Charles Anderson? Yeah uh, Curtis Miles is Curtis Cur Anderson and Curtis then Anderson. Bronson Pinchot is Barry Okay, I could not keep them straight. Um, but he, so he's the one who initially calls the sex worker who uh, ends up being a trans woman. And then at the end, they're standing outside, Joel and uh, whichever friend that is, they're standing outside on the lawn. And, and the friend is like, I don't need uh, to, to use your sex worker brothel. I, I get it my for free and I don't need this. And Joel says to him in a, like a very tender way, like, whatever you want to do is okay with me. Yeah. And that to me in that moment felt like, I feel like Joel is telling him that he like gets that this character is maybe gay and is okay with it. But maybe I was putting oh, that onto it. But hmm. that was my read is that he's like, okay, you don't want to come in and, and partake. 
and that's okay with me. And it was almost said like, hey, whatever you want to do is okay with me, you know? And I, mm-hmm. I mean, I almost wished that they would have had like, you know, hey, do we have alternate sexual interests here? I've got more than just blonde women for you. I, I was thinking um, that if this movie was made today, I think Jackie would be at that party. And you'd have a scene I, That's where, what I – I wanted Jackie at the party. Yeah. You'd have a scene where at least one or more of the boys was interested in Jackie and then maybe one of, the, one of their friends teased them but the others shut them down. It's like, no, there's nothing wrong with – like Tom Cruise would shut them down. It's funny. I hadn't thought of Miles as gay at all. I think yeah. for me – but I'm not saying you're wrong. I think it's very possible. It's a very interesting reading. To me, Miles is the guy who's all talk. You know, and that that's that whole he wants everyone else to lead the crazy life and do the things that he's never going to do because he has a trigonometry exam tomorrow. Remember, uh, as he keeps pointing right. out. Right. And he has scene. no time to be chased by the killer pimp. And I think the other part of it is that there is a kind of the, the flip side of that thing we were talking about is that a, a lot of the ideas of sort of male seduction is this idea of like, you know, you're the great hunter. And so there's a victory if you seduce the character, you know, and think about one of the things in those 80s movies often is like the you know the characters make a bet to see who can seduce the un, the unseducible girl um but they don't sing and dance like in guys and dolls the fun way to do it but mm-hmm. but the point being like but i think and i think in that mindset as, as toxic as it is one of the aspects is paying for it is cheating you know because then she, you didn't yeah. you didn't seduce her you didn't get one over on her you didn't you didn't get to take sexuality from her you she got something out of the deal as well she got paid and and i mm-hmm. and to me that's what it was it's this kind of machismo of he's so obsessed with how people see him that he thinks that he'll that he thinks that he'll people will think less of him if he pays for it so he wants to say oh i don't need to pay for it and, and tom cruise is doing the much more sex work positive of like sure that that that's okay but refusing to think that there's anything wrong with having paid for it but I, mm-hmm. but that being said, I think your perspective as well could be just as accurate. I, I, I love that as well. And there, there is a whole like weird dynamic where she's like, "Well, I'll be your girlfriend," and he like he gets jealous of his friend coming over and is like really mad mm-hmm. that they that he might have slept with her. And it's like, well, you don't own her. Like she is a sex worker. So they kind of they <laughs> they dip a toe into the ponds of like, is she my girlfriend? Is she here for work? Even to the point where like, so they go out uh after the party and uh literally take the bullet train to Pound Town mm-hmm. or whatever destination that train <laughs> stops at next. I will say, having grown up in New York City, um, late night subway romantic encounters are uh, not an unheard of event. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they, the there's like an older person who's like drinking and watching them, and they just like put him out at a certain station, <laughs> and it's like, oh, oh okay. So um, and but so while they were away doing that, his whole house gets cleared out by Guido, and. Guido then in a what I what also could have been a very hilarious scene is like auctioning his home back to him, uh, mm-hmm. which was I thought was pretty funny. And we know that Vicky was in on it, the you know uh, Lana's friend, um, but we it's unclear whether Lana is. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's kind of the end that we get to is like it, in that scene where they're having dinner together at the very end where they've gotten away with it all. He asks. Was it a setup? And she looks away for a long beat and then says, no. And then they just go, you know, go forward and go on. Um, 
what was your take on that? <sighs> yeah, they do play her very complicated. You just don't know. I mean, she is, she has chosen a path that you, you know, she is trying to own her own success and she's willing to steal the egg when we first meet her. That's fine by her. But she is is someone who's constantly backed into a corner. I I felt like that she did have something to do with it. Mm. Um, I, I thought and, so too. And he is okay with it because he knows the situation she's I, in. I, I think I had a somewhat different take on it. First of all, just in terms of the egg, I, I guess I don't I don't see that as stealing because I think he has put her in such an awful position where like you know, she has performed a service that she has owed money for that he can't pay for. And now he disappears. Like, if I'm her, I don't know if he's coming back with the cops. I don't know if he's coming back to actually pay me or to do something terrible to me. So to me and her, for her for her to be like, I'm owed money. This person is maybe trying to scam me. I'm just going to take a thing that looks valuable and leave. Like, I, I got no problem with her doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, like, technically it's stealing. Yeah. In terms of the setup, though, I – yeah, I – I think it's definitely left open. I, they did enough to show the tension between her and Guido that I, I'm not positive. I buy that it's a, uh, that she was in on it. I, I think what I more thought of that was because I love the ending and I love that it's very melancholy. It's very melancholic. Like it's not super positive, happy. The, the music is very kind of sad and contemplative. I think what I got from that was that him asking that, reminds her and then reminds him of how far apart they are and then on some level the mm-hmm. both because of the way their relationship started but also just because of the way that he's always going to be on some level judging her and she's always going to be on some level you know feeling what she feels about him that that they're never going to be able to actually trust each other that they're, because on some level if you think she is his girlfriend him asking this is horribly offensive like how could he believe that about her but also yep. how could he not mm-hmm believe it you know and I, to, to me that was kind of the point of it was that like i don't think they're together three years after the movie ends you know i think the kind of point is like they had this moment oh, together yeah. and they're both yeah. a little i mean because in some ways i think it's also important she's his age like hopefully she's at least 18 or 19 mm-hmm. but like she's she's a kid in many ways as well and i think for a little bit they're caught up in this romantic dream of look what we just accomplished and look how good we are together but I think whether or not she's in on it, I think that moment is all about realizing the huge gulf between the two of them and that they're never actually really going to be able to trust each other. Yeah. Yeah. And that he is le- very likely going to go on to this Princeton life, you know, that he like we're unsure that he truly deeply wants it, but he's still going to do it. He's going to go to Princeton and he's going to, you know, buy his own crystal egg someday. Uh, I mean, maybe not, but. I, I believe that he probably was. Um, so, like, this is going to be a tough one because, like, there's what this movie is thematically. There's what it is filmatically. There's that whole long POV shot at the beginning um, that's, like, really unexpected and cool. We didn't even talk about dancing in the <laughs> underwear or the Mandela effect. Um, <laughs> so... Nathan, do you want to say anything about the filmmaking? Because there's a, a lot to say. We haven't said it, I feel. Yeah. Um, no, I, I guess I don't really. It. I feel like this was a writer's movie, you know. Mm-hmm. I feel like the director, 
who hasn't done much directing since. Um, really, um, like the writing is the strongest point, but I think it, it was really solidly directed. Um, in terms of any other kind of like comments, I don't really have any. Mm-hmm. So the other people they considered to play the role of Joel uh, were Tom Hanks, which <laughs> then then this movie definitely is a slapstick comedy. And um, John Cusack was definitely considered, um, which like could have made this mm-hmm. more of a better off dead. Uh, and then also Kevin Bacon, Gary Sinise, and Sean Penn. Huh. Well, funny to me that Sean Penn and John Cusack, since they both go on to star in the two other big 80s sex comedies we've been talking about, or non-sex comedies, Fast Times mm-hmm. and, and Better Off mm-hmm. Dead. I, 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 don't, I don't know what this movie is like if Tom Hanks is in it, but I ha- like if you think about how now he has this career basically based on being this trustworthy, lovable old uncle of a white man kind of person – you know, mm-hmm. he's often referred to as like you know, America's most trusted person or whatever it is. I don't think he has that career if he starts out running a brothel for teenage hookers. Like, I just don't think that's that's the like maybe he still has the same career. But I feel like that would just put such a different understanding of him uh, into Hollywood mindsets. Uh, it'd be fascinating to see. Mm-hmm. Agree. Mm-hmm. Um, OK, so on a scale of like one crystal egg. To ten <laughs> crystal eggs, um, what do you rate this uh, in crystal eggs, Nathan? It's a tough one. Uh, I my gut says a seven. Okay. Um, which it's it's really you know it's not that it has any uh, wrong moves. You know, it's just a matter of of in terms of personal gravity towards the story and, and joy and things like that. But I, I think it's a very, it's a very good, strong um, surprise. Yeah. yeah. You know? And what do you think, Matthew? So it's funny. I, I, I think judging this movie in a lot of ways comes down to sort of an age old question that I imagine you as watching the 80s stuff, you always have to ask, which is how much do you forgive a movie for the time it was made? Because, like, mm-hmm. forgive this is going to be a bit of a digression, but it's also very 80s related. Um, in the wake of the passing of Betty White, I've been going back and watching a lot of Golden Girls episodes and realizing, like, again, I watched that as a kid, how much I missed. And that's a show where you'll have these episodes that deal with issues that in really powerful ways, really looking at things that you'd never would have thought of before. In it's uh, certainly not thought that the 80s were talking about it. But then also still have things where you're like, oh, yeah, this is an 80s show with problematic. Like there's one episode where one of the characters like goes to see a mental health professional. And it's a very positive like there's nothing wrong with therapy and there's nothing wrong with going to see a therapist. And it's so good. And then they make an anti-Semitic joke about the doctor being Jewish. And you're like, oh, God. But and, and, and like I, I love. <laughs> We were almost I there. I love The Golden yeah. Girls. I think it's a very important, very good show. I think it's also stuck in its time. And I, I kind of think Risky Business to me is the same way. Because like, one thing we didn't even talk about with that whole scene is also the like, you know, men profiting off of the sex work of women is not something that has a very positive, uh, like, 
there's a lot of societal mm-hmm. and, like, and like problems going on in that that aren't discussed by the movie at all. Yeah, he's basically replacing right. her pimp. And, and she's encouraging know. it, but still, like, the if reluctant you think about how pimp. much money he profits from their work, like, yeah, okay. So, but I, th- I think I'd probably put around, uh, I think seven is a really good way to put it, because I think it is, it's a dated movie in many ways. I think there's some people who would have trouble watching it. And, I mean, I don't think a person of color ever appears in the movie. Um, except Only Jack, Jackie. yes, Jackie, thank yeah. you. And like, yeah, maybe there's like a waiter or something like that, but it is not. <laughs> yeah. There's a cut. There's a, there, there's two people. There's two or three people yeah, on the subway. I think, so, I think so. Oh, that's right. Um, yes. You know, so yeah, I can understand like this is, I think I have a very strong identification with this movie because of my own background. So that's a big part of why I love it. And also because as a child of the eighties, I love things that are about skewering the eighties. So I would say like, yeah, for me, I think it's a seven, maybe even an mm-hmm. eight. But I also think that that's probably I, – I can very well understand why for someone else this movie would have a very low – much lower rating. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I, I will I will take it one click mm-hmm. down. And that that's all. Just one click down to a six because for me, it just wasn't fun. It was, it was good, uh, mm-hmm. but it wasn't fun. So if you're going to go back and watch something from the 80s, um, you know, it, it – either has to be just so incredible that you can't imagine anyone not having seen it or so ridiculous that you have to show it for to point at it and say look how ridiculous um and this like it just isn't it doesn't have his foot firmly enough in either of the camp but it's a good movie so that's why i can't give it a five i'll bump it up to a six because it is Mm -hmm. good and you know, but I can't give it higher than that because it's not fun. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so, and it was, this one was really tough too of like, what would the deep cut recommendation be? Because like, mm-hmm. I, it was just really hard to pick a way to go. So yeah, because it is an outlier, you know, yeah. in a lot of ways. Very much so. So what, what would your deep cut recommendation be, Nathan? Um, well, yeah, again, I had a lot of difficulty finding one for this, but I'm, I'm going to go with maybe one that isn't so deep, but it, it, you know, if you, let's say did enjoy this movie, I, I would, I gotta say, you know, the graduate is probably the best comparison I can think of, you know, um, it's, if you haven't seen it, it is more, um, surreal and abstract in a good way than you're probably imagining. You're probably imagining like a sixties version of I've got to go, you know, I've got to get the, I, you know, I, I've got to score and, and lose my virginity. It's not that kind of story. It, it is someone who is very much kind of in the same situation um, as Tom Cruise, like just turning and turning in terms of that anxiety being on the precipice and then love and sex getting involved but it's a it's a very cinematic movie. It's it's um mm-hmm. it's uh definitely worth a a, a a watch if you haven't seen it before. Mm-hmm. That's a great one. Uh, and Matthew, what is your deep cut recommendation? I think for me, I mean, I've mentioned all I mentioned them all, but I think like I would want to watch this movie and then like maybe over like a weekend or something, watch Better Off Dead, Fast Times at Richmond High, and Wall Street. Because I kind of feel like all four of those movies mm. are all looking at the same set of situations, just with vastly different lenses, mm-hmm. you know? 
and 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 to me, I think there's something really interesting about like looking at how do how do these different '80s movies with very different directors, very different perspectives, all look at this question of like young affluent white people and the problems that they have and the ridiculousness of the problems that they have. Uh, so yeah, I think that's uh, I definitely I'm probably gonna spend some point today uh, watching Better Off Dead, and I don't know. If you if you all have covered it already, but if not, sign me up for you know some months down the road. We have not, yeah, we have not. Um, it's it's kind of hard to talk about movies like Better Off Dead because it's like you end up just saying like I like this gag, I like this gag. That's fair. Fries. That's fair. Um, it is yeah. just like a very but quotable I, movie without too much to maybe to talk about. Oh, so quotable. Um, so I went like I really enjoyed Rebecca De Mornay. And, like, she's so known for just being, like, the femme fatale kind of woman. Um, I wish she had gotten some or would get at some point some kind of, like, I'm going to be in a completely ridiculous, you know, Sandra Bullock type role. Um, but my recommendation is a movie from 1993. Uh, it's The Three Musketeers that uh, she stars. She's one of the, uh, you know, sort of somewhat evil kind of in a tough position lady de winter mm-hmm. and uh i just I, I don't know why but i always three musketeers movies are like comfort food to me and this one has <laughs> oliver plath uh Kiefer sutherland and charlie sheen yeah. and tim oh my curry God. tim curry <laughs> is cardinal the- richelieu the young guns of the seventeen hundreds. Yes, movie. that's precisely it. And uh, Gabrielle Anwar and Julie Delphi, and like you know, it's just uh, oh, and and who's the Chris o- Chris O'Donnell at his Chris O'Donnelliest mm-hmm. as uh, D'Artagnan. So that's my recommendation. Like any time to recommend 1993's The Three Musketeers because I I think I like it's it. great, but it's terrible. <laughs> Although I would I would. I would just um, add, um, if you do want to see Rebecca de Mornay getting to be a fantastic actress and not in that kind of role, she's so not she, – she, she, it's – I think a lot of people don't realize it's her. Um, in the TV show Jessica Jones, she is Dorothy Walker, the mother of uh, – Jessica's best friend who's the TV star who's always had this mother pressuring her from a young age to push her too far. That part's played by Rebecca de Mornay. And it, it's one of, one of the biggest parts wow, of the show. It's a yeah. very important – very. It's, brilliantly acted and has nothing to do with the femme fatale this oh mm-hmm. i did not know that i guess i didn't finish jessica yeah. jones <laughs> um so where can people find you matthew and listen to all of your wonderful podcasts sure well as mentioned i run two podcasts uh one is called superhero ethics where we look at kind of ethical questions from um just different superhero stuff uh although we we it started out as superheroes. Now it's pretty much anything geeky. So we cover video games, movies, TV shows. Uh, we, uh, we decided that martial arts is a superpower. So we've been <laughs> doing things about Cobra Kai. Yeah. We decided that uh, surviving in Miami on a substitute teacher's salary is a superpower. So we did do an episode <laughs> about Golden Girls, which we cover everything. Looking at like, looking at it from a kind of an ethical standpoint, you know, asking questions like, you know, should Batman kill people or team tap, team cap versus team Tony or, examining the prime directive in star trek stuff like that so it's a lot of fun uh you all were on it for an episode we did on spider-man that was a lot of fun um we have a lot of great things going on we're currently doing um a, a look back at a lot of the old 80s movies uh, a lot of the old bat the a lot of the old batman movies which are from the 80s uh originally some of the first ones in preparation for the new batman movie and then the other podcast i host is called 
the Star Wars Universe podcast. And that's more of a kind of like we do reviews of different Star Wars properties. We're right now doing episode by episode of Book of Boba Fett. We're also in the middle of doing episode by episode of Star Wars Rebels. Um, and that's not ex- explicitly an ethics show by any means, but we do take more of a um, like that's not a show where we're going to go into telling you like the exact names of every droids and every piece of hardware because we looked it up you know we've all memorized the star wars encyclopedia we're gonna get much more into characters and the story and the force and all that kind of kind of more philosophical sides of things so you can check out both of those podcasts and you can find those as well as some of the others i i guessed on by going to the ethicalpanda.com uh that's our website and there also you'll find our facebook our twitter all ways to find us on social media wonderful cool uh, where can people find you, Nathan? And if they want to give you a bunch of money to do the second <laughs> half of uh, the last movie ever made, how can they do that? Well, uh, the the best way to kind of uh, find my stuff is through uh, Squishy Studios. Uh, so squishystudios.com or our, our page on Facebook. Uh, and uh, our movies and contact information, all sorts of that stuff is on there. Wonderful. Um, find everything. Oh, you can find me. The, the human person in real life at the Neighborhood Comedy Theater. If you are in uh, the East Valley, greater Phoenix area of uh, the state of Arizona. Um, if not, you can find me in the interwebs at NCTPHX or at Most Excellent Chrissy. Um, and you can find Most Excellent Pod at Most Excellent Pod. Um, we're so very excited to have you uh, listen with us thank you uh for for being a friend just to tie it into the all the golden (laughs) girls mentioned um we really appreciate you and of course you know now's the time at the end of the podcast where i'm like please like and rate and review um what words do i pronounce that you don't care for let us know uh we appreciate it (laughs) and (laughs) we appreciate you so While you're out there in the world, please do remember to keep the most excellent 80s movies podcast motto in mind. Be excellent to each other. And party Party on, on, dudes. Party on, dudes. Party on. And that's it. Yay.